Welcome to FNT Bible Talk, where we're going through the Bible and showcasing God's glory through His unified story. I'm your host, Felix Birch. On this episode, we're discussing 1 Samuel 1 through 12, Israel's rejection of God as king. Hey guys, welcome to F&T Bible Talk. I hope that last week's episode blessed you on the book of Ruth, and today we want to dive in and look at 1 Samuel. We're going to start the book of 1 Samuel, and before we do, I just want to kind of talk about where we've been in the story and where we've come to now leading into this book of Samuel, because this is a transitional period. This is where the story shifts from the previous with the judges until now the kings begin this conversation. And so the first thing we want to look at is just maybe a little bit about what we've come from. So just like we saw earlier in the previous uh, books that we've looked at, God has been faithful to his word. He has made good on all his word. And despite all of Israel's spiritual wandering and rebellion, he has delivered them into the promised land that he told him he would. He's brought blessing to the land and he's given them warning. He has told them what he would do and how he would bless them and how he'd be with them if they would if they would be obedient and follow after him. And all the while we know that God had spoken, that he desired for his people to be set apart in this land, not only in their belief, but also in the way they would live with the nations around them. And by doing so, they'd be loving and trusting God's rule and following him and only him and no other, no other gods. But the land that they'd come to in the promised land, there was a lot of temptation for them. And there were there was opportunity for the people of God to compromise in their life. And this is what we had seen in the book of Judges, is that these people began to be influenced by the other nations around them, and they begin to compromise in the very things that God had told them not to do. You see, God had always been faithful to his people, and he loved them. He'd rescue them over and over again. This cycle that we saw in the book of Judges where the people of God would turn away from God and find themselves in sin. And the next thing they know, they're crying out to God for deliverance. God would prove himself again. He would hear their cry and he would raise up a deliverer. And then once again, the cycle would begin because they'd find themselves in sin. So now we've come to the place in 1 Samuel where this cycle has continued time and time again. And it shows how much these people truly needed God or a king. If you remember, the book of Judges closed with one of the saddest verses in the Bible. And the verse goes like this. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever seemed right to him, or was right in their own eyes. The people of God have come into the land, they've settled into where they're supposed to be, but now they are now living in a place of spiritual apostasy or a spiritual anarchy. They're no longer following after the Lord. They're in spiritual rebellion to God. And each one of them is trying to determine their own truth or try to determine what they believe is right and wrong by their own understanding. They're no longer looking to the word of God for guidance and direction in their life. And so during these, even those dark days in the book of Judges and at the beginning of 1 Samuel, it was during those days even the high priest, Eli himself, who would be a representative of the people, also failed to provide any type of spiritual truth or leadership to the people of God that the Lord would have demanded. 
And so this is where we come. This is the context where we start off in 1 Samuel and the story that we see here. And even though this was the dark days and at the beginning of Samuel, things don't look so good, the story does start off with a glimmer of hope, much like we saw from the book of Ruth, which was to show us that there there still was a remnant people in the earth for God. And just like we saw in Ruth, there's still some in the beginning of Samuel. And this is where we see the character Hannah. Hannah was a devout woman who had prayed and had asked God to give her a son. And she was, she was not able to conceive with her husband, but the Lord honored and answered her prayer because of her cry to him. And she named her son Samuel and dedicated him to the Lord and to the serving the Lord for all his life. And we meet the character Samuel, who the Lord would begin to speak to Samuel, even while he was a young boy, and he would fulfill everything that Samuel had prophesied. Samuel was used by God to deliver God's word and to judge the people. And because of that, there would become a period of peace in the land that we read about in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. And so when we think about Samuel's life and the kind of man Samuel was, we want to look at a few of this before we jump to any of the context. I'm just going to give you some brief overview of what Samuel, what his life was like. As a young man, he was miraculously born to his mother, He was weaned and given to the Lord as Hannah had promised. So he was dedicated to the service of the Lord. He would hear the word of the Lord for the first time in chapter 3, where it says in those days the word of the Lord was rare or the light had seemed to have gone out, meaning that the people of God were in a dark spiritual place where there was no more truth, but God raised up Samuel. Even as a judge, he officiated over a covenant renewal for the people of God in chapter 7. And he judged Israel all throughout his life. And the scripture talks about how he judged well. And not even just that, he was also the ones who would would, um, anoint the kings. As he grew old, he appointed his sons as judges, but they were wicked that we'll read about in chapter uh, chapter 8. And he heard Israel's demand for a king and God used him to give Israel a king. And these are some of the highlights I'm just reading over Samuel's life. Saul was the first king he anointed. He anointed Saul as ruler over Israel that we see in chapter 10. He was also the one who was aware of how Saul disobeyed in chapter 13. Saul was commanded to wait for Samuel to offer a sacrifice, but instead he rushed to doing his own sacrifice, and and Samuel was the one who had arrived. He was the one who told Saul that God had replaced him. He gave the command to destroy the Amalekites, which we know that Saul disobeyed in chapter 15. And because of that, the kingdom of God was ripped from him. He also killed King Agag of the Amalek, as Saul should have done, but Samuel had to do it himself. But Samuel's ministry didn't stop there. He also anointed King David over Israel in chapter 16. And he, when Samuel died, he was mourned by all of Israel from chapter 25 because of his faithfulness and how much he served God. And so when we look at Samuel's life and just the highlights of those moments, Samuel lived a life that was devoted to the service of the Lord, just like his mom had promised in chapter 1 of, this, of the book of Samuel. You can see it all throughout Scripture. He served as a judge. He served as one who would prophesy. He served as one who would hear the word of the Lord. He served as one who would anoint the king. And he served as one who would, who would minister and help the kings in the service to God. And so Samuel's life was an amazing story. But for the second time, I don't want to focus too much on Samuel's story. I want to focus on the people of Israel. 
Because we have to understand the book of Samuel and the, and the book of the Judges and Kings and all the books of the Bible. Really, it's all about God. And I want to kind of show us how the relationship of God and Israel and how God, this book shows us how God has always been in control and is in control. And so in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, what we see is we see a particular story where the Israelites are coming out to war. Um, They went to battle against the Philistines and they lose this battle. It talks about how the battle had spread and Israel was defeated before the the Philistines and they lost about 4,000 men on the field. So the people decide, well, okay, we lost the battle. Something must have done wrong. And so instead of seeking God or Yahweh for direction on what to do, they decided that they would bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh and bring it into the battle against the Philistines. This was their own initiative, their own direction, their own attempt to to bring the presence of God into battle. God had not told them to do this, but it was their own heart. And in fact, we see that the two sons of Eli, who at this point, we if you read if you recall in chapter two, they were very very immoral men. Not men who just dislike the law of God, but actually would I would go so far to say they despised the law of God, completely disobeying God's commands, even though they were the sons of Eli in this place. And so they go with the Ark of the Covenant, hoping that they can use it to win the battle. But we read how the Philistines mount up their soldiers together and they shout and they get ready for war and they win the fight. And in fact, 30,000 Philistines, 30,000 Israelites fall in that battle. And in the process, both of Eli's sons die, just as they would be prophesied from chapter 2 and even in chapter 3. And Eli himself, when he heard of the news about how his sons died in the battle, but ultimately how the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, he too fell down and broke his neck. So the leaders of Israel, essentially Eli and his sons, were gone. They had died and passed on. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. But we know the story what happens. The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and in an act to show how their god Dagon was greater than Yahweh himself, they put the Ark of the Covenant in front of the presence of Dagon. But we read about how when they did so, the next morning when the Philistines came into the temple, Dagon had fallen flat on his face. And in a sense, in a position of of submission and worship to Yahweh. Not that Dagon was a real god of any sort, but it showed that the, even the gods of the Philistines would bow before Yahweh. So they set, they set Dagon back up, and the next morning they come back in. But this time, Dagon has not just fallen over, but his head is severed and his arms are severed from him. Showing complete destruction, how Yahweh would destroy the gods of his enemy, and that he would not submit to any other gods. He is greater above than all. So the Philistines become fearful of this and frantic over this. They realize that this God, Yahweh, is greater than their God. And so they decide to move the Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant and they move it to a new location. They send it to a different city. But the Ark of God, in a sense, begins to afflict the people with tumors and there's diseases and all these things happen. And so they declare, well, we can't let the Ark of the Covenant Remain with us, for the hand of of Yahweh is against us because of this. And so they decide that they're going to put the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to send it back to the Israelites. 
And they're not sure whether everything, all these diseases, everything that has happened to them is an act of God or is it just because something is going on. So they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to say, we're going to put the Ark of the Covenant on two new cows, milk cows in particular. And these milk cows, we're going to let them go. And if they go and they go back to Israel, then we know it was Yahweh who was doing this to us. And if they don't, then we'll know that it wasn't Yahweh at all. And it was just chance of some sort. But what's really interesting about this is these milk cows, what's, what we know about them is that milk cows were all what were used to feed the calf. And so they would always, if you let a milk calf go, a milk cow go, they would come back to their calf. So it was basically like saying, hey, we expect that these cows are going to come back because of their calves and their babies. But they did not. So it proved even more so that it was an act of God that Yahweh was doing what he was doing. And he was judging the Philistines and even defeating the Philistines, even though the people of Israel were in rebellion. Who The Philistines were the enemies of the people of Israel. And God was still punishing them and beating them and still, still blessing Israel, even though they were not serving him faithfully. And so the ark comes back into the house, to the people of God and it brings them back into the presence. And it's a, it's a great story. And it's an interesting story because I think there's several things we can learn from it. Number one is this. When you look at how the people of God attempted to use the ark of the covenant for their own personal battle, I think that's something we can, we can ask a question about. You see, these people did not ask God, God, what do you want to do about the Philistines coming against us? How do you want us to fight them? This is a battle that we have, but we don't know. They didn't feel like we don't know what to do. They decided to come up with their own plan and their own agenda. And essentially what they tried to do is take the very presence of God or the ark of of God and use it to fight their battle according to their plans and to do things according to how they thought they should be done. And this is just goes in line with everything with the judges, how everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. They thought this made sense. Let's go do it. And they tried to, in a sense, manipulate the presence or the ark of God for their own battles and their own purposes. And God would have none of it. And so the people lost the battle. But he didn't just decide he would allow himself to be captured or the ark to be captured and the Philistines to rule over him also. He exposed the Philistines' gods, and he exposed the Philistines also. That they would not be able to take Yahweh and manipulate him and show that they're greater than him. And he destroyed them too. He destroyed their god, and he even put sickness and curses on the people. And so what we learn from the story is there's an example that we see here. God will not be used for people's personal agendas or battles. And God is not a toy for us to just pull out of our pocket whenever we want them to declare over things that we're go- that we are happening to us or things we're going through. We must go to God and say, God, how do you want this battle to be fought? God, how do you want this to go on in my life? What is happening? And God will give us direction and God will lead us to victory. And so it's it's going to the Lord, not manipulating God, but coming before God honestly and asking him, direct me. And that's not what the people of Israel were doing. They were very much doing the opposite of that. So it leads us to what we see in chapter 7 is the people start a a covenant, a a renewal of the covenant under Samuel. Samuel's service and ministry unto the people continues. But we get to chapter 8, and I want to read chapter 8, a few scriptures in here. And this is where the people of God reject God as their true king. And this is really, really important. 
This is a huge transition period from the judges to the kings. Because ultimately, we're going to read about David and all these other kings. But the kings, the ultimate king, is going to, it's going to lead us to Christ Jesus. And so let's just read 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9 real quick. And this is what it said. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this, this, this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they also, so are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly, solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so we see in this passage of scripture what has happened here. Previously in chapter 7, is it talks about, you know, Samuel's getting older. We see it. He's getting older in this place, and his sons are taking his place. And his sons are not good men. They're not good judges. They're not fit to lead. They're not following God faithfully like their father. And so the people come, and they desire um, for these men not to judge over them, but they desire a king. You see, the people of God were longing for stability and, and leadership in their lives. And what they were asking for was an earthly king. And it might seem like a request that isn't that bad, but what it really does is it reveals the people's rejection of God and how they were really asking for an earthly king. But yet God wanted to be their king. God was their king, but this isn't what they wanted. This was one of the ways in which Israel was meant to be different than the rest of the world is that they did not have an earthly king. They had God as their king. But they rejected God's plan and God's kingship in their life and desired to be like all the other nations around them. So what did the people actually ask Samuel to do? And why was it such a wicked request, we might ask? Well, the people's request may have seemed innocent or even logical in some sense, like we need a king to lead us into the battles. What they really were asking for was for security and stability. Yet Samuel knew and he understood that the people's request was ultimately a lack of trust in God. God was meant to be their king, their true king. And God had set it up all the way back from when he established them as his people that they could depend upon him for everything. They could come to God and God would be their security and they could place their trust in him and he would meet every need. But this did not satisfy the people. They wanted to place their trust and an earthly king. I can imagine that we could all relate to this in some way. You know, it's easy for us to say to trust God when everything is before us or everything is happening right. Your job security, your marriage is fulfilling, and everything you care about is going well. But when one of those things is missing, we notice or we feel a sense of insecurity or anxiety or unhappiness that could come in our hearts. And this is kind of where Israel was. They wanted a king that they could see and control and touch and manipulate. But God saw their request not just as a request for something. It wasn't something good, but as a rejection of himself 
and a rejection of his character, even though he had proved to them that they could trust him after time and time again of how he would deliver them. God called their request for a king as simple disobedience. It wasn't God's will for him, but God allowed it. And we may ask the question, why was it so bad? Or why did God give it to him? Why did he not just say no, but God allowed it? And he used this request to bring Jesus ultimately through the line of David that we'll see later on in the Bible. And so sometimes God will allow even our our requests to be answered because he'll use them to teach us things. So even though Israel had been warned about a human king and what he would be like, and the power he would use, they still demanded one. And in fact, what we see in chapter 8, verses 10 through, I believe it's 18, we really read about how the king would take their vineyards, their orchards, he would take a tithe from them, he would use their their, their young men to man his chariots, and basically he would not be as God was. God was serving the people of Israel so beautifully, but now they're going to serve this king in a harsh way. And this king would, these kings would do these things to the people. And, he, and Samuel warns them. And he tries to warn them. But yet they still reject it. And this is what he, it says in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So we look at this story and we look at what he is saying here. We look at the rejection and how they're stating we want to be like the nations and we want a king that can judge us. And a king that can go out before us and fight our battles. It was an ultimate rejection of God. But really it was that they wanted to have a king that would be just like them. And that would give them everything they want. They did not want to submit to the kingship of the Lord God, of Yahweh, because of how God was righteous and holy. They wanted gods like themselves. They wanted to continue to do what was right in their own eyes, but have a king who would do it for them. So when we think about people like us in today who've been redeemed by Jesus, we also fall into this trap. You see, the people of Israel were looking to an earthly king for protection, security, hope, and fighting their battles and all this stuff. But God ultimately was saying, you're rejecting me. And even as followers of Christ, when we look to the things of the world for protection, security, hope, or validation, we too begin to live like the Israelites. Forgetting our identity and the love that comes from the relationship that we have with Jesus and God, we become bound up by other kings, other things that may satisfy us, or other things we hope will bring security. Sometimes as humans, we, we allow the, the king of money, money to become a king in our life. And we think it'll bring us security. Sometimes we hope a relationship will bring us protection and we allow it to become a king in our life. When ultimately all these things will fail us and they will never satisfy us. But Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate king, who does bring protection, who does bring validation and security and hope for this people. That is who God has intended us to submit to and to be our king. 
This pursuit of things to replace or things to ultimately fulfill us other than Christ leads to a life that is overworking and destructive and a life that is downcast and broken. And it's this type of a behavior that does not, that makes our lives, and if I could say this so clearly, would make our life not distinguish between the world and us. You see, the fact that we place our hope in King Jesus for our protection, validation, and life, and all the things in us, it makes us distinguished from the people of the world. And it makes the world look upon us in awe. And that's what Israel was supposed to do. But they rejected God. And we too, when we reject the, the love and the leadership and the kingship of Jesus in our lives and look to other things, we live a life that's not distinguished. So we could even ask the questions that this would just be a thought-provoking question that I think would be good for us to think about or even for you to ask yourself. In what ways do we stand out from the world? And when we trust in God alone as king. So what ways do we stand out from the world when we trust in God alone as king? Think about that. And just pray that through. And in, in the second question I'd say is, are there things in my life that I am putting to be king of my life and hope, trying to find security, protection, hope, or meaning in other than Jesus Christ. And so the story goes on from there where we know God tells Samuel what he's going to do and he selects Saul as a king and through a series of events, he comes upon Saul, he prophesies, he does the things of the Lord. And even when we read about Saul and the kind of man Saul is, he's a good-looking man. It talks about how he is a man who's handsome, he's a young man, and he's taller than everybody else from the shoulders. I read somewhere that the average Israelite was five foot six in those days, or man. And, the, and Saul, most likely, they think, would probably have been like 6'3", maybe 6'5". And so he was a big man. He was everything you'd want a king to be. He was exactly what Israel wanted him to be, just like them. And we're going to see, as we go through next week's episode, some of the characteristics that Saul displays that reveal that he was not someone who truly was after God. And if, you, and, and if you can flip forward to even chapter 10 and 11 and 12, you do see that Saul started off on the right foot. He started off fighting the battles for the people of God and even serving faithfully to God. But as his reign and his rule ends quickly, in the sense that his, the way he follows God faithfully does not last long. So just to recap this week's episode, we looked at really the focus on how the people of Israel were doing things in their own eyes as right. And what that was, was using God's presence or the Ark of the Covenant for their own cause and their own battles without discerning what God's will was for their life. In a sense, they were trying to manipulate God's presence for what they wanted Him to be. And then we saw of how God's people even rejected Him as God, trying to find security, hope, and protection, or whatever it might be, in things other than God Himself who desired to be that. And they tried to find in an earthly king so that they could be like the nations around them. And so I hope this episode blessed you. I hope it challenged you. I hope there's some things that you could really walk away with and pray through. And I thank you for listening. And next week we're going to look into more of the life of David and Saul together and how God uses David in a mighty way. Love you and thank you. And see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. For more FNT Bible Talk, be sure to subscribe and visit fntchurch.org for more information.